New ads hit the airwaves, and a sitting congressman says he wants another sitting congressman to jump off a bridge. This is the latest edition of Grand Divisions, a Tennessean politics and policy podcast. It's the week of August 13th. I'm Dave Boucher, investigative reporter. And I'm Joel Ebert, phoning in this week. That's right. Obviously, uh, you can tell that Joel is not with us in the newsroom. He is uh, up north. Uh, because he's a Yankee and that's that's where he's from and he's visiting his family. But he was kind enough to, to call in on his vacation to uh, talk about the latest in Tennessee politics. So first, Joel, let's get into this um, interesting statement from Steve Cohen. He's a Memphis Democrat who is frankly known to make interesting statements. What, what did he say? Essentially, at a uh, uh, community breakfast last month, Cohen got up, uh, gave some remarks. This was a, a prayer breakfast that Bredesen's campaign was hosting. He referred to Trump as the big orange president, uh, and he said that he's going to come down here and endorse Marsha Blackburn, quote, because Marsha Blackburn, if he says jump off the Harahan Bridge, she'll jump off the Harahan Bridge. Uh, Cohen added, I wish he'd say that, uh, referring to Marsha and, and Donald Trump again. It was pretty quickly and roundly met with uh, disgust from many, especially the Republicans who were trying to seize on these as very uh, you know, controversial comments that have come from a Bredesen supporter. Bredesen's folks have said, you know, if you listen to the remainder of the audio at this event, it had nothing divisive like that. So... Uh, they say that this was a, an isolated incident, but nonetheless, Bredesen did thank Cohen for even being there, even after these remarks. So, Yeah, and just again, for context, you know, this is the same Steve Cohen who uh, a few years ago was, was tweeting at a young woman at the State of the Union. Then he said that she might be his secret daughter, but then DNA evidence showed that she wasn't his secret daughter. So there have been some potentially bizarre statements coming from Steve Cohen in the past. And and more more recently, Peter Stroke, when he was up on Congress giving a hearing related to the FBI's or the, the special counsel's investigation into Russian meddling, Cohen said he wanted to give uh, Peter Stroke, the FBI now former agent, uh, the purple heart if he could. So, yeah. And, and this is, these are the type of comments that if you're a Republican nationally or in Tennessee, you want to seize on and tie to the Bredesen campaign as much as possible. Right. I mean, this is the sort of thing that the Bredesen camp clearly is not going to run on if they, tr- if they're trying to, to win over independents or, or any Republicans who, who might be on the fence. It seems like, uh, uh the, the Bredesen camp was not too excited to see this come out. Right. No, they weren't at all. But at the same time, they were well aware that this was going to become a story. I mean, when I talked to them immediately after the news broke, which this story came from Huffington Post initially, they basically said, yeah, we heard the remarks and we had it recorded and we thought that it was going to become a story. So they were well uh, aware that this is was, was going to be controversial. At the same time, yeah, it does not jive with their message, which Bredesen has been delivering of not all Trump uh, supporters, he doesn't believe, are idiots and, and these backwoods folks. I think he's really trying to make ovations to appeal to Trump voters. We've heard more of that scripted message from both candidates as, as new ads have, have hit the airwaves. Joel, what are we hearing from these new ads that, that are out in the Senate campaign? So there, there were two that launched last week, same day um, on Friday, the both national groups. One is the Senate Leadership Fund, which is essentially Mitch McConnell's uh, political action committee, uh, just gave a, a 
broad overview of Marsha Blackburn um, in this ad called Tenacity. Where they talk about how she's a go-getter and she sold textbooks to pay for college. Um, then they feature ads or, or video of the president uh, touting Marsha's candidacy uh, when he was here for a rally for her. Uh, on the Democratic side, a group called Majority Forward, which is kind of the nonprofit arm of the Senate Majority PAC, not to be confused with Republicans. It's actually a left-leaning uh, Chuck Schumer-aligned uh, political action committee. They came out with their own uh, pro Bredesen ad. Uh, so you, you have, again, these are both very national groups touting each candidate, um, clearly showing that this is an early sign that national interest is going to play into this race. Sure. And, and of course, both camps are going to try and, and, and play it in their favor, right? Obviously, as, as you talk about in your story, the, the, the Blackburn camp wants to tie Bredesen with, with Chuck Schumer. They think that's one of the, the, the boogeymen that, that the Republican base might be opposed to and might make, again, those, those independents in the middle not want to not wanna go over to the Bredesen side. But they're both still also, both camps, it looks like, trying to just uh, put out a personal message, right, and, and do less attacking, clearly, than what we saw in, in the governor's race. Have we seen new ads in the governor's race as well, Joel? Yeah, we saw one uh, from the RGA, the Republican Governors Association, that was essentially Bill Haslam, the current governor, talking about why Bill Lee should be, you know, voted in as the next governor. It's a very pro ad. There isn't a difference. He doesn't mention uh, Carl Dean, the Democratic nominee, but it is a, a national group, which the current governor, Bill Haslam, is chair of, uh, making a play to appeal to voters about why they should support Bill Lee. Yeah. Uh, shifting back to the Senate race really quickly, we, we did also hear from both uh, Representative Blackburn and uh, former Governor Phil Bredesen at a, at a Farm Bureau uh, event on, on Thursday. What was the pitch that they made and what do you think resonated? I think it was a very – this was the first time that they've actually shared a room together since I've been covering at least the last – you know, since, since they've both gotten in the race. So you had Bredesen essentially starting out giving his background saying he's – from upstate New York. And that's a place that, you know, the culture is different. It says 70% of his family voted for Trump and uh, those folks own guns and, and he doesn't believe they're idiots and, and really trying to make, again, clear ovations and appeals that um, he is not of the belief that, that people that support and, and like the president are, you know, the scum of the earth that, that some folks try and say Democrats really believe about their the opposition party. When he was trying to pivot to the issues, he really focused on, again, the main things, the tariffs, the effects that has had on farmers, you know, the farm bill. And again, really just talking about things like how to get Congress to work on, on real issues, issue-based uh, stuff that he wants to work on, as opposed to throwing mud at each other. It was it was a very interesting uh, discussion, though. Marsha was mostly more on the uh, here are the great things we've done in D.C. Uh, approach. So touting the tax cuts, that kind of. Thing. But she also came out again and sort of said that these these tariffs that the president is is touting that have been really controversial in the in the in, in the Republican Party that she was against those tariffs, or that at the very least that they were concerning to her, right? Certainly, yeah. She she did not downplay that, but uh, she has certainly not condemned them in as, as hard of a way that others have. Um, I think she is playing the long game and hoping that from the get-go, what Republicans, many of them said was, we think this is a negotiating tool and a tactic that we hope will lead us to uh, something better on the other end. Nobody really knows what that is right now. So it, it, it's kind of a gamble, but uh, she's hoping it pays off. 
Uh, again, both both Carl Dean and, and Bill Lee were also there. They were asked some questions about um, support in rural Tennessee, and they talked a little bit about uh, you know their, their visions for rural Tennessee. That's kind of been a, a hallmark of, of the Lee campaign. He's kind of said that he has this roadmap for rural Tennessee. Not not a ton of specifics there, but but that's you know he's a he's a farmer. That's an image that he wants to that he wants to put out. And and Carl Dean talked about this idea of rural hospitals closing and the need to uh, expand access to healthcare dur- during this event. What what neither candidate really talked about uh, was something that was happening the same day as this Farm Bureau event. And that was the first execution in Tennessee since 2009. Uh, Billy Ray Eirich was eventually executed by the state. He was pronounced dead at 7.48 p.m. on Thursday. Uh, before that happened, Joel and I reached out uh, to both of the candidates just to talk about whether they thought Bill Haslam should should intervene. The governor decided not to. And what their what their thoughts were on on the death penalty. Both of them kind of demurred on whether they thought that that the governor should do anything. They kind of said it wasn't their place to, to weigh in. And then they kind of gave these broad the capital punishment is the law of the land sort of sort of statements. But uh, we had the chance to speak uh, this week with uh, Professor Chris Slobogan. He is the director of the Vanderbilt Law School's criminal justice program and also kind of a death penalty expert. He's looked at some case law around the country. He joined us to talk about the role that governors have in the death penalty and the roles that state governments have in kind of deciding the penalties and what uh, impact, one, a new governor could have on the death penalty in Tennessee, but two, uh, what impact that governor uh, could could potentially uh, have in, in in pushing forward on, on potential changes or or no changes in the legislative session to come. Joining us today on the podcast is Professor Christopher Slobogan. He is the director of the Vanderbilt Law School's Criminal Justice Program. Professor, thanks for taking the time to speak with us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So obviously, uh, Tennessee carried out its first execution in almost a decade last week. Just what are some of your initial thoughts uh, about? some of the reports of what happened uh, to Billy Ray Eric during the execution and what implications, you know, the reports could have on any changes to Tennessee law surrounding executions or, or if they will have any uh, effect on, on execution law in the state. Well, I guess if I had to predict, I'd say there's not going to be a significant change to execution law in the state of Tennessee. Um, even though there's been some controversy over the method of execution used uh, involving um lethal injection uh, using chemicals, apparently the execution went off fairly smoothly, unlike what has occurred in some other states with some other executions. Um, and the only other issue I think that was raised specifically in the Billy Eirich case had to do with the fact that he allegedly was severely mentally ill at the time of the offense, and yet the Tennessee Supreme Court um, did not seem to consider that a problem either. And so that particular issue, I'm guessing, will not um, result in any changes to the Tennessee death penalty either. So I get a lot of questions from people about why it matters if the drugs that are used in the execution cause pain that is similar to torture. Can you just talk a little bit about the constitutional questions that that, uh, arise from the drugs that are used in these executions? Well, yes, the Supreme Court of the United States has said that under the Eighth Amendment to the United States Constitution, which prohibits cruel and unusual punishment, that certain kinds of punishment are off-limits, are unconstitutional. So, for instance, torture is impermissible under the Constitution. And those who argue that the lethal injection method of execution is unconstitutional claim that it's a form of torture. So, for instance, in the Billy Irie case, the trial judge found, and in, in the trial that took place a couple of weeks ago, 
that the individual subject to this particular method of execution uh, suffered pain from 15 to 18 minutes. And the advocate said, well, that's proof that the individual is undergoing torture during the execution. Obviously, neither the trial court nor the Tennessee Supreme Court bought that argument, but that's the nature of the argument. Obviously, people can disagree over what the definition of torture or unnecessary pain is. And some people, I guess, think that, hey, if the person's committed capital murder, they should actually suffer some pain. In fact, that's a good thing. Uh, it's a way of expressing our outrage at what they did. So that's what the debate has been about. And so far, the United States Supreme Court has uh, said that at least certain forms of lethal injection do not violate the Eighth Amendment, are not cruel and unusual, even if they do cause some pain. Yeah, those are the questions I get about, well, who cares if, if, he, if he typically feels pain because he committed a, a heinous crime. And so I've had a lot of these conversations about, well, if it does violate the Constitution, if a judge does find that it violates the Constitution and the state is allowed to violate the Constitution in, in, in this regard, what's to stop a state from violating the Constitution in, in any other regard? It's, that, it's important for, for everybody in society to know that the state is following the Constitution, especially in these literal life and death scenarios. Yeah, well, that's the point. It depends on what the Constitution says. So as of right now, this form of execution, lethal injection, is constitutional, um, at least within limits. Uh, so right now it is constitutional. The argument on the other side has been that that's an erroneous decision, but so far it's withstood challenge at both the lower court level and at the Supreme Court level. Completely apart from this, the, the constitutionality argument, in Tennessee, the governor can weigh in and grant clemency uh, at any moment. He could, if he wanted to, commute a death sentence to life without parole or, or, or take various other actions. What did you think about Governor Bill Haslam's decision not to weigh in on the IRA case and this idea? He said multiple times that he didn't want to serve as a 13th juror. Right. Well, I understand his position. I think in this particular case, it was the wrong decision by the governor um, and that's not because there was some glitch in the process. That's one of the things the governor said over and over again. He, he, his job was to make sure the process was carried out correctly, and it was. I mean, Billy Irick got a lot of different chances to make certain kinds of arguments, but one argument he never got to make was that at the time of the offense, he was severely mentally ill. Not insane, but nonetheless severely compromised by mental illness. And to that argument, Governor Hanson said, well, a doctor found Eric competent to stand trial, and that must mean there wasn't a problem with respect to mental illness at the time of the offense. The problem with that statement is that, first of all, a finding that someone's competent to stand trial has nothing to do with what the person's mental state was at the time of the offense. As it turned out, the trial took place over a year after the offense. So the fact that he might have been competent to stand trial is irrelevant right. to whether he was mental at the time of the offense. But more importantly, the doctor who found Ira Compton to stand trial later recanted that testimony in federal court. He later said, well, now that I know what I know, uh, I think that my original opinion the pers- that Ira was competent was inaccurate. That's the word he used, inaccurate. So for two reasons, I think Governor Haslam's reasoning on that particular issue was erroneous. So we asked the, the gubernatorial candidates, Bill Lee and Carl Dean, just to say, you know, this is before the execution, 
what would you do if you were in Governor Haslam's position? And what do you think about the the death penalty? Both of them kind of uh, said, kind of waved off the idea that they would step in, mm-hmm. uh, especially with, with Haslam. Here's here's Carl Dean said, I, quote, I will say that as governor, I would give every application the full attention that it deserves and would do my best to make the right decision for the people of the state of Tennessee. I do not foresee our General Assembly changing the law to prohibit the death penalty in Tennessee in the near future. And that's essentially what, what the lead campaign said as well. Quote, those who have been found guilty had full access to the judicial and appeals process in our state, and the power to commute those sentences should be reserved only for the times when the process failed. You've been at the legislature. You've talked to lawmakers about capital punishment and about whether there should be kind of a caveat for people who have mental illness. You talked about this a little bit earlier, but what's your sense that in Tennessee, in the legislature, that there will be any changes to the capital punishment, even with a new governor and with a new crop of lawmakers coming in? Yeah, well, if I had to bet, I'd say there would not be any significant change to the death penalty in Tennessee. But as you mentioned, I have testified in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee about this particular issue of exempting people with severe mental illness at the time of the offense from the death penalty. And the logic of that follows from United States Supreme Court opinions, which already exempt people who were juveniles at the time of their offense, and people with intellectual disability. The argument is people with severe mental illness are just as impaired, if not more impaired, than a 17-year-old or a person with intellectual disability. So that's the argument, and actually several judges have bought that argument. Um, there are very few states that actually execute people who are severely mentally ill at the time of the offense. So there is something to the argument. We'll see if it gets out of committee and on the legislative floor. If I had to predict any significant change to the Tennessee death penalty, it would be that particular. It would be with respect to that particular issue. It, it, it feels uh, like this. Is a, it feels like it's a tough push, at least politically, in a conservative yeah. state to make any sort of changes that would appear to voters to be pulling back on the state's ability to execute somebody. I, I think that's true. I think, uh, in, in a, as you put it, a conservative state um, abolishing the death penalty is a hard sell. On the other hand, as you probably know, there have been a number of states that have abolished death penalty in recent years, including states that you consider relatively conservative, states in the Midwest and so on. Now we're down to 30 states that have the death penalty from over uh, 40. So there have been a number of jurisdictions, that, both conservative and liberal, who have, that have abolished the death penalty. And I will say sometimes, perhaps it's for moral reasons, sometimes I think it's for economic reasons. The cost of the death penalty to any state is enormous, um, and that can factor into the analysis. But for whatever reason, the trend has been towards abolishing the death penalty, and in those states that keep the death penalty, a large number of them have not executed anyone in five to ten years. Yeah, and, and just to, to touch on that financial aspect really quickly, we heard you know, this last legislative session during a hearing where I believe you were at from, from Senator uh, Richard Briggs in Knoxville talking about this, this cost of millions of dollars that it costs to both pay for the legal defense of somebody who's on death row and obviously pay for the prosecution and the, the numerous legal steps that these cases go through. And there are, there are, there's been at least one, if not more uh, um, reviews that say, you know, it can cost less for the state to put somebody in prison for the rest of their life than it could to sentence them to death and then pay for all of the legal battles that come out of that. So, and that's, yeah, that's been cited by that. some conservatives as to why they think that there should be at least another review of the death penalty. Yeah, I think that is an argument. Uh, it's hard to believe perhaps, but it apparently is the case that it costs more to put someone to death than to keep them in prison for the rest of their lives. I chaired a 
task force in the state of Florida on the death penalty, and even the prosecutors who were morally in favor of the death penalty uh, had major problems with it because, as one of them put it, it sucks all the resources out of the rest of the system. Um, all of his best prosecutors had to be assigned to death penalty cases. It took an enormous amount of money to prosecute those cases that could have been used in other cases. In one case I was involved uh, with in Alachua County in Florida, the county was almost bankrupted as a result of a death penalty case. So uh, there is that economic problem or issue as well. Sure. And, and last question for you, just, just full disclosure as well. I was, I was one of the seven media witnesses who was required to be there for Billy Ray Eric's execution. We, we saw what happened to him. We've described this in the Tennessee and elsewhere that I saw him snoring and coughing and uh, potentially choking, making noises out of his throat. Uh, and you could change, see sort of changes in, in his pallor. There have been advocates who say those are signs that he could have potentially be feeling the pain that they, you know, this argument that they made during uh, the lethal injection trial uh, that happened before his his execution. There is an ongoing legal challenge to the lethal injection protocol here in the state. What impact do you think his execution will have on that lethal injection challenge and the potential for future executions down the road? Well, it could have an impact. I, when I said earlier that the execution went pretty smoothly, I meant that as a relative term. In other words, compared to some other lethal injections, they went relatively right. smoothly. But, but none of these go completely smoothly. There always is some kind of evidence that something is going on during the execution. So, of course, if you're an advocate against lethal injection, you're going to make a big deal out of that. My guess is that won't impress the United States Supreme Court. We've been speaking with Professor Christopher Slogan. He is the director of Vanderbilt Law School's Criminal Justice Program. Professor, thanks so much again for taking the time to, to talk with us. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for talking to me. There are two more executions scheduled to take place in Tennessee later this year. One's in October, one's in December. It'll be interesting to see if either candidate decides to change their mind or weigh in a little bit more, or if the uh, nominee who's who's elected um, decides to weigh in on the election in, in December. It's something we'll just have to wait and see. It's kind of a, a changing environment um, for for the governor on capital punishment here in Tennessee. Uh, moving forward with the race and, and, and something to, to look forward to uh, in, in the coming weeks, this is kind of a, uh, this is again a period where campaigns are uh, regrouping, focusing on, on getting out their message for the general, reintroducing themselves to a different um, kind of spectrum of, of voters potentially. Uh, Joel, what, what are some of your plans on, on covering some of these races moving forward? We're certainly going to try and get as much access to the campaigns uh, as possible. So we'll, we'll of course be following them at forums and campaign events. But uh, one thing I'm, I'm trying to actively work on uh, in planning with uh, the, the Senate race side is uh, riding along or at least spending a good portion of the day with uh, both Blackburn and Bredesen. Uh, I think there's a lot of unanswered questions about who these folks are, right? Like, I, I don't know that everybody knows the story of what did Phil Bredesen do after he left office. I don't know that everybody knows a more biographical sense of who Marsha Blackburn is besides her time in public office. We're, we're hoping that spending time with them on the campaign trail at these events, a little bit behind the scenes too, will, will help peel that onion back a little bit more and give readers a, a better understanding of each candidate. 
Yeah, that's right. We're obviously going to continue to monitor their campaign finances as well. Uh, there'll be more reports coming out in, in a few weeks, not not for a little while, but just t- again, trying to see where they're spending the money that they're getting, who they're getting their money from, uh, see if there's an indicator that people have more um, you know, interest and uh, faith in a certain candidate versus um, whether they did in the past. Uh, we also uh, received a notice on Monday from uh, an organization here in, in Nashville that runs a, a yearly event. It's the 3686 Festival. It's an entrepreneurial festival, a festival for entrepreneurs. And they announced that they would be having uh, Bill Lee and Carl Dean um, at their event. They're going to be participating in, quote, technology and innovation fireside chats at this event. It's here in Nashville uh, on August 30th. Um, so that'll be interesting. We'll see We'll see what they have to say. Um, obviously, the um, entrepreneurship and uh, innovation is something that you hear a lot about in in Nashville, and it'll be interesting to hear um, hear her candidates' views on that. Obviously, one would imagine that Carl Dean is ready and excited to talk about that because he's been engaging with this organization for a long time uh, as as mayor. And we'll see what uh, Bill Lee, as a you know relatively small now kind of big business owner, has to say on on the topic as well. A quick programming note from us: our uh, good friend Jordan Bowie has decided to uh, pursue new and exciting endeavors outside of the Tennessee. And so we will not have a fact and fact uh, check this week. However, uh, you can look forward to more exciting uh, political uh, coverage in, in the future. There's obviously lots of great coverage from the Tennessee and the USA Today Network currently uh, on uh, our, our different platforms. Please continue to rate us and review us on iTunes or wherever else you listen to our podcast. We really appreciate your feedback. And if you have any questions for any of these campaigns or these candidates, send it to us. You know, Send us an email, give us a call, uh, tweet at us using the, uh, the hashtag Grand Divisions. We'd love to hear your feedback. We also plan on getting the candidates back on, you know, at some point more than just a one or two minute soundbite. So, you know, if you have questions that you would like to hear directly from the candidates, feel free to send those to us and we can record and, and do an extended interview and hopefully include it in one of our future episodes. Of course, we're also going to be ramping up our coverage with debate season, which is really uh, coming up around the corner. There's planned debates uh, in September, October. Um, so, uh, you know, once Labor Day hits, things are kind of in the uh, quick work and, and fast action uh, that it right now is still kind of in the early stages of the general election. That's right. Plenty more to come. We'll bring it to you as soon as it happens. Uh, For now, that's our podcast this week. I'm Dave Boucher, investigative reporter. And I'm Joel Ebert. And God willing, I'll be back in Nashville (laughs) for the next time. We need you back. We need you back. We're excited to have you back. But thanks for the phoner. We appreciate it. Of course. Thanks, Dave. We'll see you guys next week.